I'm going to stand here and try to sort out exactly how to see my notes. So you all just sit and enjoy. My wife this morning, I was like, I'm, I think I'm going to do this electronically. And Rebecca goes, yeah, no, you need to make sure that you print your notes. And so I've, I've got backups and backups of backups and backups of backups of backups. I have water that I'm going to drink on the carpet. So that's open rebellion. My apologies, I guess. So we're, we're in John. We're back in John. John 5. Um, and I'm excited to be in John with you. I'm excited to be in John 5 with you because it's a really, um, there's a lot going on in this passage and we're going to we're going to tackle it together. This morning we're engaging a passage of Scripture that has some significant technical issues. Um, so I hope you'll bear with me as, as we work through those. Um, even more, though, it has significant implications for how we understand Jesus. This morning we're going to talk about Jesus, the compassionate Jesus, the giver without strings. And Jesus, the, the thorn in the side of the Pharisees, a little bit. At the end of the day, I hope you'll walk away with a renewed confidence in God's preservation of the text. With a renewed confidence in Christ's compassion for you. And most of all, with a fresh sense that God is at work around you. Right now, it's happening. Pray, pray with me, would you, that God would accomplish John's purpose, that we would believe today in our hearts. God our Father, we long to make much of you. We long to lift up the name of Jesus to show how worthy he is to each other and to the world. God, we ask today that you would work through your spirit in our hearts, that you would show us who you are, that you would show us how you love us, that you would show us that we belong. Thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that you superintend results. God, please guard my words, use them, and use your word the most to accomplish your purposes today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read John 5, 1-15. through 15. I'm going to read from here so that I don't forget to change the slides because that would be really bad. John 5, John chapter 5, verses 1-15. through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. 
Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Let me read that verse again. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now incidentally, that day was the Sabbath. Oops. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. There's a lot going on in that passage. Now remember, from the beginning of our study of the book of John, we've been talking about the reality that John has a real specific purpose for writing these things. Um, He says in, in John chapter 20 that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that he wrote, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's got a real particular purpose. Um, and he's, he's written very intentionally. Um, it's good for us to remember that, that while, while these are men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, they also are serving as writers. They are, there's intent. He's building an ark. He's telling a story. Um, and so it's, it's very intentional, the things that we have. A big part of John's narrative of the ark that he creates for who Jesus is are the seven signs, the miracles that Jesus works. Last week we saw um, the, the healing of the ruler's son. Uh, and you remember that Jesus pushed back, you know, uh, you, this whole generation, all they want is signs. You, you have, oh, I need to see your miracle. And then the man very, very um, politely, um, very desperately pleads, please, my son is going to die, and Jesus heals his son. So this is a big part of the narrative, and it's interesting to see how how the miracles compare to each other, really, because in this case, it's it feels really different. Uh, and we'll get to that. But first, any of you younger people, you guys in like the ten or the eight to twelve stage, can you find the problem with this passage? Are you looking at it in your Bibles? John chapter five. Go there. Tell me tell me what's wrong. This is a really if if you're in my generation, maybe you grew up reading Encyclopedia Brown or the Hardy Boys where there was a mystery and you had to find it. There's one of those in this passage. Can can somebody tell me what's what's wrong? Is there a problem? No, you don't see it? Something isn't there that maybe should be there. There's a number missing. Look at the numbers. Tell me what's missing. No one? Okay, grown-ups, help them out. What's missing? Verse 4. Yeah, it, 
Verse 3? Verse 5. What on earth happened to verse 4? Well, depending on your Bible, maybe it's a footnote down there at the bottom. Um, and it says, Some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That seems significant, right? That's just drop. So here's a little lesson on textual criticism, and if this makes you want to roll your eyes, my apologies, it's actually really important. Um, it's really important because what we're talking about is how do we know that the Bible we have is the Bible God meant us to have. We live at a time when we're blessed. We are blessed to have all kinds of great science happening, all kinds of great archaeology happening, and what they find are more and more copies of the Bible. Uh, I, I need some volunteers from the from the eight to twelve set. I need probably three people. If you're willing to come up here and help me out with this, raise your hand. If you're between eight and twelve, come on up, Allie, Anne, come on. Okay, these three are going to come do it. Okay, so back when the Bible was right up here, right across this line, back when they were composing the Bible and then transmitting the Bible. You had a problem. You didn't have printing presses. You didn't have um, you didn't have typewriters, word processors, nothing. You didn't have the internet to distribute your blog to the masses. What you had was a man writing with a quill and some parchment, um, which was probably not great. And then you had people copying it. There's a game that you often play with kids that illustrates why this could theoretically be a problem. So we're going to play a little game of telephone. Allie something. She's going to tell Lily something. Lily's going to tell Anne that same thing, and we'll see if if it if it how it holds up. What what did you hear? Um the black cat had a purple shirt while eating Okay, okay. Thank you girls. Give them a round of applause. Thank you. Go back to your seats. That's that's Pretty close. What I started with was that the, the black cat wore a purple chapeau while eating a fine brie. And, you know, chapeau, that's kind of a funny word, so it got modified to shirt because, you know, maybe that's something that you wear and it's a little easier for, for kids to understand. This is exa actually exactly the kind of things that you're up against when you're talking about transmitting a text um, without the power of the internet to do it for you automatically. Um, you run into these sorts of issues, regional variations, or you get a scribe who tries to maybe explain something. Um, you know, like, what's a chapeau? Well, I don't know, but I know what a shirt is, so let's, let's go with shirt here, because that's kind of, it's like the same thing. Um, and if you're like me and, and, you know, you grew up with, you know, this is the Bible and you're confident in it, this can be maybe a little scary, except that it's not. Here are the wonderful truths um, about the science of textual criticism. So across all the manuscripts that they've found so far, there are 600,000 variances. 600,000. Do you know it's less than 1% of those are at all significant? Um, most of them are word order shifts um, or slight regional variations in spelling, that sort of stuff. So they throw out 
594,000 variances that are just, they're not significant. That's amazing. So we're down to 6,000 instances that you actually, that they need to take a look at and figure out what happened. In the case of this particular issue, they can track it really well. Because what they have are first, they have the oldest manuscripts have no trace of verse 4 at all. It's just not there. Then there are a couple manuscripts where it's like there's a note scribbled out to the side that here's what we think might have been happening. And then a, a couple hundred years later, all of a sudden this has become part of the text. And so we can confidently say it, it wasn't part of the text. This, this wasn't there. Here's the other thing about textual criticism, is that in the 6,000 variances that remain, not a single one of them impacts a major Christian doctrine. Let's take this one for instance. Let's leave it in there. Are there angels? Yeah. Does God heal people on occasion miraculously? Yeah. Okay. So, is there any problem with this passage? No. It wouldn't, it wouldn't change what you believe about the world at all. Um, the, a, a much harder passage where there's this kind of a, a challenge uh, is at the end of Mark. Um, at the end of Mark, there's like a really tough one where... But again, what it relates is stuff that, that happens. Happens in other places in Scripture. There's nothing intrinsically scary about these textual variances. There just isn't. Um, a kind of an interesting side note to this is that we owe a, a great deal to the Roman Catholic Church because they maintained a lot of these manuscripts. And they, in fact, if, if we had a representative of the Roman Catholic Church here, they would point out to us that they knew all along that this wasn't in the text and it was never in the Vulgate that they distributed. It was us Protestants who added it back in because we found a manuscript where it was there. And we were like, ha ha, we've got something you don't. Uh, <laughs> So, all that to say, textual criticism, it's the art, or it's the science of taking different manuscripts, comparing them, and making sure that what we've got is what was as, as close as possible to what was originally recorded. Whew. That's a big, big technical issue, and it's not the only one in the passage. So let's go to issue number two, which is actually even more exciting. In the 1700s, 1800s, um, if you wanted to attack the book of John, you would have said, ha, chapter 5 proves that John was not the disciple, couldn't have been, and he's a liar because this pool doesn't exist. There's no pool. There are no colonnades. Clearly, we would find these things if this guy knew what he was talking about. And then they were out digging one day, and Tim called Bob and said, hey, Bob, I think we found a colonnade. And Bob said, no, you didn't. And he said, yeah, yeah, we did. And then they kept on digging, and they found four more. And they found the pools, and they've got exactly where this happened, which is fascinating and cool. This really exists. This is a place in Jerusalem. Um, they can actually track now, because they've dug enough, they can track what happened. And first, first there was an aqueduct, and then they diverted it and built a little dam, and it became a pool, and then they built another pool, and then they... This really happened. Um, what's also interesting about this is that it seems like the Romans either took over at some point or maybe even were instrumental in building it. The Romans and, and the Greeks. Um, Greeks and the Romans. Sorry, timeline. Right. 
um, the Greeks and the Romans because there was a Greek god, and I can't pronounce the name because I'm really bad at that, uh, but it was the god of healing. And uh, if someone's got it, please feel free to help me out because I will definitely trip on this. It's... Uh, Asclepius. There you go. I'm only going to say it once because there's a great god of healing. And often the temple for this Greek god of healing had pools. And so it looks like there's the possibility that instead of this alternate history that was introduced by scribes at some point of waiting for an angel to come, this could have been a temple to this Greek god that Jesus walks into, which does put kind of an interesting twist on this story. But either way, this pool exists. Um, there is solid archaeological uh, uh, information and, and proof that John actually knew more about the city of Jerusalem when he was writing than the scientists and the archaeologists of the 17 and 1800s, which is pretty cool. This really exists. Um, this, so... If nothing else, what you should take away from, from these dry kind of, you know, these, these hard science details is that God has certainly superintended the details. He has taken care to deliver to us um, the Bible and in a way that we can be confident. And the more that they attack it, the more they find out that we have reason to be confident that these people existed um, seemed to know what they were talking about geographically uh, and and were historically accurate. So even even the uh, secularist has to give you that. This, the, the details here are, are accurate. In fact, more accurate than the scientific literature until very recently would have been able to, to give you credit for. That's pretty cool. So God in the details. Um, scripture being accurate. Verse 4, not being in there. There's all kind of interesting stuff in this passage that you've got to kind of get your head around before you can tackle what happens. But what happens is more important than the dry stuff. So, let's talk about what happens. Let's talk about first Christ the Compassionate. So, passage begins and there's a feast happening. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem, as he often does when feasts are happening. We have zero detail about what feast. I don't know. There were lots. Could have been any of them. Um, John didn't see fit to tell us, so we don't get to know. But a feast was happening. And Jesus goes up to the feast and he goes to this pool. And maybe it's a Greek temple to the Greek god of healing, or maybe it's just a pool where sick people hang out. We don't know for sure. Um, but either way, Jesus goes there where there is a crowd of sick people. A crowd. The passage says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. A multitude. Jesus zeroes in on this one man. And the passage says he'd been there for 38 years. 38 years. That is a long time. When I have an issue in my life that I need to pray about, I, you know, if I can give it 38 minutes, that's a miracle. 
this man has been there for 38 years, or he's been sick for 38 years. Maybe he hasn't gone here every day for 38 years. We don't know. But he's been sick for 38 years. 38 years. And Jesus sees that, and he acts out of compassion. It does beg the question, what's different between this week and last week? Between these two passages? Last week, you've got a man coming to Jesus saying, my son is is at the point of death, would you heal him? And Jesus pushing back. This week, in this passage, you have Jesus going, finding this one particular man in a crowd of sick people who's been there for 38 years and and, and changing his life. Last week, Last week's passage in, in John at the end of John four, the guy was a ruler. He was someone that you'd think, you know, if you're doing this about if you're doing this to gain influence, this is the guy I'm gonna pick. He's a ruler, I'm in my hometown, so it'll be a big deal, people know who I am. That's not how Jesus does it. This week, he's got this poor man who's been sick for thirty eight years, and listen to the conversation. This is crazy. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Now, I don't know if there was a, a, you know, kind of a buzz rising as Jesus walks into this place. People are like, hey, this is that guy, and I've heard that he does miracles. Maybe not, but maybe. Either way, a man approaches you as you're sitting there beside the pool, hoping for something to change, and he says, do you want to be healed? And the response is preposterous. The response reads like, um, maybe you have some of these friends on Facebook. Uh, I, I have them. I may be related to a couple of them. Um, everything's like this big emotional, well, here's the thing though. You, you know, here's, you see what had happened though was, that's, this guy just launches right in. Well, I mean, you know, I've been here for a long time. Uh, and, and I try to get into the water, but I'm pretty slow. So I can't quite get to the water. Someone always gets there before me. And man, how is that an answer to the question? It's not. Maybe maybe the question was about his motivation. Christ sees something there. He sees something. He sees a man who's been sick for 38 years sees a man who, it sounds like, can't quite get out of his own way. And instead of haranguing him or of giving him something to think about, he just says, get up, take your bed, and walk. 38 years! 38 years! of not being able to live life normally, of being sick. We don't really know what kind of sick, but sick enough that he was here with the invalids. 38 years. And this man, God became flesh, this man speaks out of compassion, out of love, out of kindness. Get up. Take your bed. And walk. And he does. He's healed. It's amazing. 
So he picks up his bed. Okay, here I go. And what happens? He gets a ticket. Basically, he gets a ticket. Here, God has worked this dramatic miracle. It's huge. It's a big deal. And then, as he goes carrying his mat, somebody from the Jews, probably a Sadducee, a Pharisee, somebody who enforces the law, stops him. Hey, what are you doing carrying that mat? Okay. Um, do, do the Pharisees and the Sadducees, do the authorities know what's just happened? It, this, the way the passage is written seems to suggest that yes, they do. Because the, the man's reply is, well, the, the man who healed me told me to pick up my mat. Um, so certainly at some point they, they find out, uh, one assumes maybe they already knew. How would you react if somebody who had not been able to move on their own for 38 years got up and walked? I would think there would be a crowd. I think there would be a crowd going with him to maybe find his family or his friends or whomever would celebrate with him. So as they go, they get stopped because you're carrying a mat and you're not allowed to. So let's go digging right into Scripture. Let's find where it says that you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. It's not in there. It's actually it's a rabbinic tradition. Um, and again, here's the, the little the slight takeaway from that is these folks were serious about trying to appease God. When they, when they got the law and, and, you know, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, they were, okay, we're going to do that. How are we going to do it? And they had whole traditions written out about what you're allowed to do on those days. And one of the things you're not allowed to do is carry your bed. So don't carry your bed. Hey, what are you doing carrying your bed? Now you would think the man's reaction would be like, hey, bro, 15 minutes ago, I couldn't carry anything. I hadn't walked for 38 years. The man said, "Let me carry." Said, "Stand up and carry your bed." Almost stand up and carry my bed. But it's not. There's very little about this guy who was healed, by the way, to commend him to us. He's kind of a stinker. He he gets asked if he wants to be healed. His answer is really pathetic. He gets healed and gets accosted by the authorities, and he's kind of like, "Well, it wasn't me." It's it's about on par with Adam's reply in the garden. Who's the woman? This guy. It, it was that dude who healed me. Um, and then the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a large crowd in the place. Afterward. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We'll come back to that in a second. Read verse 15. The man went away. (laughs) Oh, okay, thanks. Thanks for healing me. Hey, where were those guys who asked me about about carrying my bed? Let's find them, because now I know who it was. Immediately, as soon as he has the opportunity, he goes and he sells out Jesus to the authorities. Certainly, God uses that to accomplish his purposes, which 
you know, his purpose in the narrative of John is that the Pharisees are going to get madder and madder at Jesus. But also, how about that guy? Seriously. That's, that's what you've got? Go and sin no more. I'm going to listen to that, but first, I got to go tell on you. This is worse than watching my kids fight. Let's go back to what Jesus said to him. See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We affirm, we believe, that sickness is not necessarily connected to sin. I think we do a really good job, actually, in Protestant North America of, of being pretty good on that point. Like, hey, you know, sickness is not, not always a result of sin. What I think sometimes we miss is that sometimes sickness is a result of sin. Jesus seems to be saying to this man, hey, you've been healed. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. You were sick, now you're not. So what's the correct reaction for, for a believer when, they're, when there's illness? Seems like, and James seems to back this up, because um, he tells you to call for the elders and pray and your sins will be forgiven. Um, seems like the correct reaction for a believer when there's sickness, illness, is to, is to be contemplative, to consider, is there sin? Is there sin? So we affirm that sick, sickness is not necessarily tied to sin, but also that sometimes sickness is the result of sin. Just like Jesus seems to say. So from this point on, in the narrative that John is writing, things are going to get worse with the Pharisees. Consistently worse. That's what's going to happen. Um, We'll see next week that um, that this is this becomes the crux of why the Pharisees were were after Jesus, and we'll see that it's because he's not afraid to claim equality with God, and that's going to be a great sermon. But it's not my sermon; it'll be Moon's sermon next week. What do we learn in this passage? What do we take away? few things, I think. Jesus is so different from the way we process things, right? And that's the first part of this passage compared to the, the previous miracle. We, um, we have a tendency to have compassion on people who are like us, we have a tendency to have compassion for people who um, who will benefit us. Jesus had that opportunity in the previous passage. I mean, he was in his hometown, and yeah, prophet has no honor in his hometown. But wouldn't it be nice to like have a real solid victory right there? Bring your son to me, and and let's do it in front of all these people. And that's not what he did. And now here he is with this man who doesn't commend himself at all to us. Who, When he's asked, do you want to be healed? The answer isn't, yes, I want to be healed. The answer is, let me tell you all the reasons that I haven't successfully gotten better yet. 
um, you know, woe is me. And granted, 38 years, I think you're probably entitled to some woe is me. But still, there's just not a lot to commend him, commend this guy to, to us or to Jesus. And Jesus picks him out of a crowd of sick people, which is significant. He didn't just go in there and like, you know, let's heal everybody all at once. He picked this particular guy for, for Jesus' particular purposes. And he picks him out of this crowd of sick people and says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He's compassionate. He's kind where there doesn't even seem to be a reason to be kind. He just makes this man's life better and gets not a thing for it, but trouble. Not a thing, but trouble. There is a picture there of the gospel. There's a picture there of what we give back. Aren't we kind of like that guy? Do you want to be healed? Well, the thing is, you know, I'm a pretty decent person. I try real hard. Um, I mess up, but it's not my fault. Um, I try to get into the pool, but somebody gets there before me. And so here I sit, 38 years. There's a picture there of the gospel. Jesus is so different. He's compassionate. He's loving. He heals this man and he gets nothing for it. How do you suffer with people? 38 years. 38 years this guy has been sick. He's, there is this note in his explanation of, of what's up with him that, you know, I've got no one to help me, which seems to indicate, um, you know, my family, my friends, they've They've abandoned me. I'm alone. How do you suffer with people? I don't think that's a skill set that I'm particularly well versed in. But it's a question that comes up in this passage. We ought to suffer well with, with others. Be patient. This guy, maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't know. But what is happening to this man, this sick man, is that the God of the universe is standing in front of him, asking him if he wants to be healed, and all he can see is his own pain and his own plan for getting better. Right? That's all he's got. Do you want to be healed? Yes, and here's everything that I'm trying to do about it, and I'm trying to get into the pool, and I can't get into the pool. And it's, especially with repetition, it becomes actually kind of funny. But really... He is so caught up in his suffering, in his, in his world, in his plan, that he can't see what God is doing right in front of him. Can't even see it. There's a picture there, I think, of how we behave sometimes. 38 years, though, is a long time to wait. I think we have a tendency to want instant results. I know I have that tendency. I've think I can paint you with that same brush. Uh, we, want, we want things to happen quick. We want to succeed. We want to climb the mountain, plant our flag. And, and this man had to wait 
38 years of sickness in a time when it wasn't real easy to be sick. We talk now about stigmas with things like mental health. Uh, you know, we talk about what a victory it is that the stigma of cancer is mostly going away. You know, we talk about those sorts of things. You want to talk about stigmas, this man couldn't live an ordinary life because he was sick. What he got to do was he got to go to this pool, maybe every day, um, maybe not even every day. He appears to not have any work. He, he, this is what he does. Um, he, he goes to the pool and he waits and he hopes. God is at work. God is at work in this man's life even while he waits 38 years. And that's a hard truth. It's a truth that doesn't necessarily thrill my heart because I'm not good at waiting. But some things take 38 years. Sanctification is a long process. Some things probably take longer than 38 years. I can't imagine that because I haven't lived 38 years yet. But it stands to reason. God is at work. Have confidence even if you have to wait 38 years. And don't be so caught up in your plan that you miss what's happening right in front of you, which is just amazing. Do you want to be healed? Yeah, I try to get in the pool all the time, but someone else is always quicker. Take up your bed and walk. And he does. So takeaways. Jesus is different. How do we reflect his compassion? God is at work. Be patient. Finally, Christ has compassion for you. I think it's so easy um, to to make that a good thing, to not take that seriously. I want to read to you a passage from Matthew. This is um, right before everything goes really wrong. Um, before they... Before the plot to kill Jesus is initiated, um, Jesus is walking... Uh, and he's walking into Jerusalem. This is in Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had a great love for the city of Jerusalem, for the people who lived there. Jesus had a great love for us. The compassion he exhibits for this one man who's been waiting 38 years sick, and Jesus says some words, and he's healed. Jesus tops that by a million miles because he goes to the cross. And he takes care of our biggest problem. 
the one that we can dwell in for way longer than 38 years and still be thinking, well, you know, I'm not that bad off. Um, or here's the things I'm trying. Jesus loves you. Jesus is already taking care of your problem. Take up your bed and walk. He's done better than that. Your sins are forgiven. That's amazing. That's the Christ that we're learning about in the book of John. He comes, he sees a problem, he has compassion. Um, also, it doesn't always make perfect sense. Because why would you pick that guy? But he did. And he healed him. Even knowing before that the guy was going to just go and rat him out, probably, he healed him. Made him better. After 38 years, what compassion, what love. So, go confidently today. Go confidently knowing that the, the, what we have in Scripture, the tale of Jesus, it's true. Know that Jesus is different. Know that God is at work. Even if it takes 38 years, even if it takes longer, He's at work. And trust that Christ has compassion for you. Let's pray and we'll be done. God our Father, You are so kind to us. God, I think it's easy to see a little bit of ourselves in that man who had spent 38 years waiting. God, I don't think I've suffered like that. But I know that you have compassion for those who suffer. God, I ask that you would work through your word in our hearts. God, that you would spur us on to confidence in Christ. In his love and his compassion for us. God, we want so much to be people who are like Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your word that tells us about him. Thank you for your son, a great savior, so different from what we would expect from how the world operates, but a great, compassionate savior. Thank you, God. We do the same. Amen.